All right. So we're in 1 John, and we are going to be working through verses 6 to 12 tonight. Verses 6 to 12 tonight. So let me start by reading the text, and then we will jump in and start unpacking it and prayerfully making some, some good application to our lives. John, the apostle, says this. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth, is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so here, what we're seeing is a continuation of what John has been trying to do with this short epistle of his. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know and be assured that you belong to Jesus, and so being united to him by grace through faith, you also belong to the Father and have indwelling in you the Holy Spirit. This is good news for every believer in Jesus, that they are united to him by grace through faith, that they have a new Father, God, and they have a new power source to live this new life, the Holy Spirit. And now John wants to bring in witnesses or, or testimony. He is all about uh, what we have seen and what we have heard we proclaim to you. And this, I admit, is a strange way of bringing in evidence. It, it's it's kind of bizarre. And if you're not familiar with the writing of John in his uh, gospel or in his three epistles, um, it, it's kind of confusing. And so I can imagine myself reading 1 John for the first time, coming across verse 6 and 7 and being like, what is he talking about? I have no categories for water and blood, and this is weird. What, what in the world is going on here? And so let me encourage you, if you're that person, as we read that, this is he who came by water and blood, not by the water only, but the water and the blood. If you're like, what in the world is going on here? I want to encourage you, the longer you stick around Christianity, the longer you read your Bible, and the deeper you dig into the Scriptures, ideas and cross-references and more of the Bible will open up. And listen, just like a puzzle, different pieces will fit together, and it will make sense for you. Don't be discouraged if when you read the Bible, you are like, I have no idea what is being talked about here. That's okay. Don't give up. You keep going. And eventually, you will learn and you will understand what is being talked about. What John is trying to do here is not confuse us. He is trying to bring assurance to us. He's bringing testimony to us. And as you'll see, John is Jewish, and so he was very familiar with the Old Testament. And the Old Testament demanded at least two or three witnesses to have a valid testimony. And so that's what he's doing here, okay? And as you grow in your understanding of the Bible, you'll start to see, oh, this is what John's doing. Oh, water and blood. And so here's the three options. You ready? There are three main options of what John is talking about when it comes to water and blood. And I'll tell you, when I first read this, the, the one that comes to mind for me is not the one that I think it is, all right? And if that's confusing, that's kind of purposeful. Here we go. The first option that scholars believe is it's talking about the two Christian sacraments, 
the two Christian sacraments, which are baptism, water, and communion, blood. The water and the blood, the two sacraments, these, these are witnesses. Probably not. The second option is that the water and the blood are referencing what happened to Jesus on the cross. Do you remember after he died, the spear was thrust into his side and what came out separated? Water and blood. Okay, and I admit, when I first read it without having studied, that's what comes to mind for me. Oh, he's, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about being there because John was there and witnessed this himself. He saw the water and blood come out of Jesus' side. And so that's a good option. I understand why scholars believe that, okay? And I have not read the, uh, the study guide. And so if that's in the study guide, that's a legitimate scholarly option. However, I don't agree with it. Okay, Pete, did you go there? Excellent, excellent. Well, hopefully he and I agree. I think what is being referenced here is the baptism of Jesus and his death on the cross. Yes, Pete, see, without even talking, we're on the same page, baby. That's what I'm talking about. All right, so, so Pete is, is one of our elders, and Pete is the most scholarly man in the room. And if you disagree, just go try to have a theological conversation with him, and you'll see. He's a, he's a top-notch scholar. And so he, he creates our study guides for us, and um, oftentimes I read them afterward to make sure that Pete and I agree. And 90% of the time we agree. It's, it's, it's good. That means Pete's on my page. Right, Pete? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding here. All right, so, so why do I think that it's baptism and the blood of Jesus on the cross being referenced here. Well, let me bring in a few uh, scholars, more weightier than myself, uh, because there's more going on in the background of this letter that the recipients of the letter would understand, but we being removed 2,000 years and not having the same controversies or heresies or heretics attacking our church, we, we don't quite understand what's going on here. So Danny Aiken is the president of Southeastern Seminary, and he writes this. The historical context of refuting the false teachings of Serinthius, or Serinthus, who said the Christ spirit descended on the man Jesus at his baptism, but abandoned him at the cross, points strongly in the direction that John had baptism in mind. Okay, so this, this was a common false teaching that John was opposing, is this idea that when, when Jesus, who was just a man at his baptism, had the Messiah spirit, which is true, the anointing uh, does mean Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, but it left him, and he was just a man at his death. Another First John scholar, uh, Gary M. Burge, writes this. The traditions of the early church claimed that one of his, John's, opponents was the notorious Serinthius, and that was Irenaeus he's, he's referring to. We can at least be sure that John was battling a controversy that diminished the need for a complete incarnation that stretched from Bethlehem to Golgotha. Birth, oh little town of Bethlehem, Golgotha. The mysteries of the cross I cannot comprehend. And one more. Another scholar, John D. Berry, writes this. He, John, wanted to assert that Jesus was genuinely human, not human in appearance only. Taken together, the references to water and blood encapsulate the ministry of Jesus from its beginning at his baptism to his sacrificial death on the cross. For John, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God meant confessing him as the anointed one of God, the Christ, who truly suffered and died on the cross. And so here we see this is he who came by water and blood, referring to Jesus. Water, baptism, the beginning of his ministry, which we'll look at in just a second. And then secondly, and blood, the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins for all those who would ever believe those alive at the death of Jesus and witnessing it to us 2,000 years later. And perhaps if this thing goes on another 2,000 years, the blood of Jesus will pay for the sins of believers for another 2,000 years. 
or maybe 10,000 years. We have no idea when Jesus will return. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Let's finish verse six. And the Spirit, now the ESV does a good job of capitalizing the S there, showing you that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. All right, now many of you have seen in the Gospels the baptism of Jesus. I'm gonna continue in my tradition here of uh, referring to John's uh, Gospel to open up the epistle. And so let's go to John's gospel first. This is the account that John gives us of Jesus being baptized, the beginning of his ministry. And so for those of you who are unfamiliar, Jesus didn't do any public ministry until this event. You hear these weird stories about Jesus healing animals and like, you know, doing all these miracles prior to the baptism. There's nothing in scripture or church history that would give us evidence of that. Nothing. Only after the Holy Spirit comes upon him and remains on him, does he begin his earthly ministry and begin to do miracles. And we would say, theologically, that has to be the case because Jesus did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he remained truly God and truly man, 100% man, 100% God. But when his godness is being displayed, it is being displayed how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. And so just as we must rely on the Holy Spirit, Jesus also relies on the Holy Spirit and does what he does by the power of the Holy Spirit, truly man and truly God. So the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. The he there is his cousin, John the Baptist, or baptizer. He was not a Baptist in the denominational sense. Okay, we often think that. No, he was a baptizer, okay? And he was preparing the way of the Lord. He was opening up the path for him. So John sees his cousin, Jesus, coming, who he probably played with when he was a child, had known him the whole 30 years prior, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the lamb is probably referring to Isaiah 53. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. And Isaiah shows how this lamb is slaughtered and the wrath of God is placed on it. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Okay? The chastisement that belonged to us was put on him so that we might have peace with God. And so John the Baptist is pointing forward, even at this first declaration, to the cross three years later. Behold, the Lamb of God that will be slain, who takes away the sin of the world. By being the Lamb who would be slain on the cross, that's how he will take away the sin of the world. And so you can see here, even at the beginning, Jesus came and his main ministry was eventually to go to the cross as a substitute for all those who would ever believe in him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Whoa, that's right. <laughs> that, means, that means his eternality. John recognizes this is the Lord of glory, the eternal one, the uncreated one, the creator himself. He was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, and now you could tell this is uh, John the apostle writing in 32. And John bore witness. Here's what John said. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me that he who sent me is God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember the testimony about John the Baptist? He had the Holy Spirit living in him from what time? Huh? Someone said it, say it louder. Day one, in his mother's womb. So we must not theologically say, ah, oh, you know, babies and infants, they can't be filled with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was. Now he was a unique case, okay? And, and often we just have to look at our kids 
And no, they are not full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> right? Right? It's like, put that cookie down. And you're like, fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. <laughs> put that apple down. They're like, all right. And they throw it at you like a 90 mile per hour fastball. So John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And so he had in some way a very unique communication with God that you and I don't have. Now, we commune with God, we get impressions from God, he speaks to us through his word, we we sense his presence, not like John the Baptist. Even Jesus said, there is none greater than John the Baptist born of women. I mean, that's remarkable. Okay? And so here, John says, I, I, I heard from him who sent me to baptize, God, that when I saw the Spirit descend from heaven and remain on him, this would be the one. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, meaning Jesus will be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I baptize with water, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you think about that image being plunged into water, Jesus plunging us into the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to God, John 6, 44. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, what John leaves out here is what the other Gospels bring in. And let, let me give you another uh, help in reading the Gospels. The gospel writers are very purposeful, not only in what they put in, but also what they leave out. And so just because Matthew or Luke has more information than John, there's no contradiction there. It's just John wants to be very specific about what he tells us, and Matthew wants to be very specific about what he tells us, and Luke, and so on and so forth. And so if you learn in Mark that there's how many demon-possessed men coming to Jesus, but then in another gospel, there's less. Don't, don't think contradictory. Think more detail. And it's to each gospel writer, it's their prerogative what they want to give us. And just because something's left out doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's a detail they didn't want to give you. Okay? All right, good. And so what happened that's left out? This. As Jesus is coming up out of the water... Yes, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus, not as a dove, but in the form of a dove. He looks (laughs) dove-ish. And and interestingly, he doesn't just come down upon him, he remains. And so there's this absorbing, if you will, of the dove-like appearance of the Spirit into Jesus. He remains on him. But then what happens? The voice of God happens, doesn't it? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's very important for what we're going to look at in a minute here. And so you have this threefold witness even here, don't you? You have John the Baptist, you have the Father from heaven, and you have who? The Holy Spirit coming down, declaring Jesus is the Christ. Okay, And we'll get into that in a minute. Now, of of the testimony of two or three witnesses, it's really important that you understand the Jewish background that John is drawing from here, okay? So verse seven, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. So you got the Holy Spirit, you got the baptism, and you got the cross. And he's bringing these three as evidence to prove who Jesus is. All right, now if we were to go to the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 17, 6 to 7, and then a little bit later in 19.5, and there are more places in the Old Testament that, that show this, but these are two very clear places. Moses writing from God to the Israelites, remember now, this was a theonomy form of government. At the time, there was no kings. This is not a democracy. This is what God says goes. He is the ruler. And he is setting up the death penalty. He's setting up the laws. He's setting up uh, all the festivals and, and what you can eat and can't. And so God tells Moses, write this. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against 
him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so get this, if you're the one bringing an accusation against someone, and you have two or three witnesses to back it up, to make sure this is the real deal, you're the first one throwing the stone. Man. So, so you, can you imagine being a false witness and then you're the first one to throw the stone that executes or begins the execution of someone? And what a terrible way to die, mm, right? It's a great deterrent to not do death-warranted crimes. If you know you're going to die, but not only that, you know you're going to get stoned to death. And so here in 19.5, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. That's called justice, right? Because otherwise I could be like, yo, so-and-so did such-and-such and and we need to kill him. And he'd be like, well, okay, well, where's your other witnesses? Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall the charge be established. And so what we would hope is that two or three would not be coming together as a conspiracy to condemn someone who is not to be condemned or condemnable. Okay? And so this is a, a way of justice for God to give to the Israelites of how to uh, punish people who have done things worthy of death. Now, here's a New Testament one. This is the so-called church discipline passage. Uh, part of church membership, and we talk about this at every church membership interview, is you are agreeing to be under church discipline if so needed. Now, we're not going to stone anybody, okay? Isn't that, isn't that good news? But what we are hoping for is that, and this is, goes for me too, right? Because I'm a, I'm a sheep in this flock as well, though I'm a shepherd, I'm this hybrid sheep thing, the shepherd sheep, okay? If I start to go astray, you know what needs to happen? Someone needs to pull me back, because sometimes shepherds be, begin to go astray too. And if disqualifyingly so, well, one of the other three becomes the lead guy, right? And I need to sit down. And that's a real thing. Let's pray that not happen. But if I also begin to go astray, the hope is that the other members and the other pastors will bring me back in. And the first step towards that is what we would call church discipline. It's always to bring people back. It's never to punish people. And so this is that passage. You ready? If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. And so step one, if someone sins against you, blow him up on Facebook. Name names, baby. Shame the snot out of them. Give it to them, right? Put their face all over the internet. No, you go to them and tell them their fault. But look at this. Between you and him alone. Alone. Now that's hard, isn't it? Because no one likes to sit in those awkward conversations. It's like, hey, you sinned against me. I got to tell you about this. No, what's a lot easier to do is tell your best friend, tell your wife, tell your husband, right? It's way easier. What's really hard is to do what the Bible says to do. Someone offends you, don't tell anybody else, but who? The one who offended. And listen, I just want to encourage you, if we will begin to practice this, if this is God's word and we are obedient to God's word, do you know what will probably happen? Blessing. Because blessing always comes with obedience. What often doesn't happen is we don't do this and then it gets worse. And it's like, well, why did it get worse? Well, you went directly against scripture. Okay? And, and so in some sense, I'm, I'm being a bit overly dramatic and obvious on purpose. I'm trying to make a point. Let us take the words of Jesus. This is Jesus' words, by the way. And even if they weren't, they'd still be just as authoritative. But this is Jesus' teaching here. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. We could say, if your sister goes and sins against you, go tell her her fault. But listen, do it between you and that person alone. Hey, come here. Let me... Let me talk to you. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And we don't need to tell anybody else about it. Okay? But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And there it is. Where does that come from? Well, Jesus is pulling from Deuteronomy. 
right? When, when he was tempted in the wilderness, where did he pull from? Deuteronomy. He must have had it memorized. Wouldn't surprise me if he did. And so, if you remember here, then what happens after this? If they don't listen, uh, you tell the church. Now, some, some churches interpret that as standing here and literally telling the church. Now, we don't do that here. Some of you are like, thank God we don't do that here. <laughs> we, we discuss it as elders, and the elders get involved in the situation. And friends, this happens, and you have no idea that it's happening. Isn't that a good thing? And so, this may have happened a hundred times, and you never knew about it once, and that's a good thing, okay? And then, if they don't listen to the elders, you treat them like a tax collector and a sinner, meaning unbeliever. And how do we treat unbelievers? With love, with kindness, with respect, and with the gospel. If they're not causing physical harm or a danger to others in the church, if that's the case, they literally do need to be removed from the church. Okay? So, that being the case, look where Jesus is drawing from. He's drawing from uh, Deuteronomy, and John is also of that same Deuteronomy flavor. Okay? They're drawing from this two or three witnesses. And so, let's read it again. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now, what he could be doing here is he could be referring to uh, some who are beginning to be swayed by the false teaching. They're taking the testimony of one false teacher or the false teacher and their people, and they're being swayed by the testimony of men. Remember the context, okay? And, And John's saying, like, look, if you're being persuaded by the testimony of men, doesn't God have greater and weightier testimony than men? And the answer is yes. And so, could John be talking about uh, the Spirit coming down on Jesus in the form of a dove and remaining on him at his baptism? It is very possible that's what he's referring to. But later in the, in the section here, the Holy Spirit's going to show up again, and so we'll wait to make a decision on that. And so here, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Now we'll unpack 10 in a minute, but I wanna show you here that Jesus Upon healing at the pool of Bethesda, you remember that strange story in John 5? You remember that? There's uh, some of the older manuscripts even say that there's this pool that angels would stir. It's like this invisible angel comes and like puts his finger in and stirs the water. And, and the first lame or crippled or sick person that gets in the water gets healed. By the way, that's in, not in all the manuscripts, but it is interesting. But certainly the pool was thought to be healing. And so, Jesus heals this man at the pool. Do you remember that? And the Jews were seeking Jesus in order to condemn him. And so, let's, let's break in there, okay? This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath because he healed the man on the Sabbath, okay? don't, don't heal on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. That's a really important verse for you to memorize, okay? John is claiming that Jesus is equal with the Father and claiming to be God, okay? Look, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, that's the flavor. People are upset. The Jews are upset. Notice in verse 18 there at the top, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Uh, John in his gospel uses Jews in 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 this sense. Those who were opposed to Jesus in his ministry and wanted to kill him, along with the Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law. And so imagine a hostile crowd, and now Jesus is gonna get into testimonies and witnesses here. Okay, you ready? So this is later in the chapter. And Jesus is arguing with these hostile Jews. And he says this, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's that one witness. There is another who bears witness about me. 
And I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Who is it? You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John who? John the baptizer. He has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Jesus is saying, it's not that I need man's testimony. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And this is the exact thing that John's doing in 1 John. He's trying to persuade his readers to believe that Jesus is the same Jesus that he and the apostles proclaim him to be, the same Jesus that Jesus proclaimed himself to be, not the Jesus that the false teachers are wanting to draw the true believers away unto themselves and unto this false Christ. Okay, and so Jesus is saying here, I say these things so that you might be saved. That's John's aim too. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's purpose. He wants you to believe, be saved, but not only that, to know that you have Jesus and that Jesus has you and that no one can snatch you from his hands. And friends, that's what I want for you. I want that for you. I want you to know that deep, residing, inner satisfaction, joy, and security that no matter what happens, Jesus has me. Do you know that? Or do you wake up sometimes and be like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he's got me. I feel like I'm holding on to him and I'm about to let go. Okay, friends, that's why First John was written for you. If that's you, he wants you to know, to know that you have eternal life. But I say these things that you may be saved. All right, let, let's just pause for one more second. Think about this. God is not playing a game with his children in that he wants you to sometimes feel secure and then sometimes he gets a strange kick out of you not feeling secure and begging him for assurance and pardon and forgiveness. Look what he said. I'm saying these things for what? So that you may be saved. Jesus' disposition is that you would be saved and the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired John to write 1 John, and he's saying, I'm writing these things that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, John and Jesus and the Spirit and the Father who sends the Son and the Spirit wants you to know that you have eternal life. In other words, the assurance of your salvation is something God wants to give you as a gift. Is that clear? And so if you don't have it, friends, you need to work in that area because how can you be effective for God and his kingdom if you're always wondering whether you're even in it? How can you be a witness so that others might believe and be saved if you don't even know if you believe and are saved? Friends, this is of uttermost importance. And so Jesus says, I write these things, or I say these things rather, so that you may be saved. He was a, he, now he's speaking of John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now he's bringing in a second witness. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Okay, now here's what Jesus is saying. I heal the lame, I cause the, the deaf to hear and the blind to see, I cast out demons, I bring the dead back to life, and I accomplish redemption and salvation. These very works that I do, they're called signs. And remember what signs do. Signs always point beyond themselves. Like that men's room sign is not the point if you have to go to the bathroom, right? You're like, oh, it's that way to the men's room. The signs always point beyond themselves. And so the signs that Jesus did were for what purpose? To show that he was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, God incarnate. And so he's saying, look, I got John the Baptist as my first witness, and I got the works that the Father sent me to do and that I am doing as the second witness. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard and his form you have never seen. All right, now, now let's think for a moment. John 5, 36, when did God the Father bear witness about Jesus? Say it louder. His baptism, 
right? And so when Jesus was being baptized, he spoke, and yes, only those who were there in the presence of the voice in John the Baptist and Jesus getting baptized heard it, but it happened. And how do we even know it happened? Because eyewitnesses wrote it down for us. And we believe that the eyewitness testimony in the Gospels is true. And so we can sit here tonight, 2,000 years removed, on the authority of a book that was written 2,000 years ago, and here we are believing and speaking of it as if it really happened. You know why? Because it did really happen. And so God the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the testimony that is the third witness that Jesus brings in here. And he says, his voice you've never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent, speaking of himself. He's saying, you think you know God, you think you have his word, and the truth is you don't because he sent me and you're not believing in me, you're not trusting in me. You search the scriptures the Old Testament, 39 books, because you think that in them you have eternal life. If we could just get the laws right, and if we could just keep the calendar, and if we could just keep the dietary code, and keep the cleanliness codes, and, and do the right sacrifices, we'll have eternal life. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus is here saying, the whole Old Testament's about me. It's not about you gathering a bunch of do's, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and then you could present your works and your life to God, hopefully for acceptance on Judgment Day. No, he says, the whole Old Testament's about me, and right now, in this moment, you're refusing to come to me that you might have life. You would choose to work out your own salvation in the sense of, I'm going to present my goodness to God for acceptance. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Come to Jesus, and he will save you. Now, Remember, we're still examining the testimonies. Remember, the witnesses. And what are the witnesses? The water, baptism, the blood, the cross, and the third, the Spirit. That's right, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who at the baptism uh, anointed Jesus, remained on him, and empowered him for ministry, but also empowered John to write 1 John and his... uh, his gospel. Now, what I want to show you here is for the hardened heart, all right, obvious evidence will be denied and will be twisted to mean something else. Okay? What, what, what the soft heart, what the receptive heart will see as clear evidence, I believe, look at this, the hardened heart, the, the opposition heart, will take that same exact evidence, twist it around, interpret it differently, and use it as evidence against. And it actually has the condition of the heart as the, as the problem, and it's not the evidence. Okay, and so let's look at this for a minute, because this is really important, okay? This happened in the book of John. How many of you remember the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus? Remember that story? And what happened to Lazarus? Remember he got sick and he died? And Jesus purposefully stayed away uh, an extra four days so that he would die, so that he could show up and perform this miracle. And so Lazarus is raised from the dead, and on account of this, all these people are beginning to believe in Jesus who previously didn't. Okay, so let's break in there. Watch this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So now we have, we have believers on account of this. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now the Pharisees are the opposition party. They have hardness of heart towards Jesus. And watch their response. You ready? So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together. Council would probably be the Sanhedrin. What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs, signs that should point to him 
as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, as the anointed one. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what we want to happen. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. Okay, now we see that they're afraid that, that the Romans are going to shut down what they have going on. Their power structures, their authority, their control, their respect. Both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And I love John's comment here. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He spoke more than he knew. So he had no idea he was actually proclaiming the gospel. It's amazing, right? And, and, and John's like, yo, he didn't even realize what he just said. You know, John's like doing this. That's right, that's right. And not for the nation only, again, this is John still, the writer, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You know who's scattered abroad? Put your hand up. That's you. If you're not Jewish in here, you're that scattered abroad. I am too. And so the point is Jesus is going to die, and he's going to gather together into one flock the people of God. So, watch this. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Clear evidence, he's performing so many signs, if he keeps up with this, everyone's gonna believe. What should we do? Let's kill him. All right, now watch this. More evidence, okay? This is just jumping a chapter later, still in the flavor of Lazarus. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, there in Bethany, they came, not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Watch this, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Friends, this is what hardened hearts will do in the face of clear evidence. It's not about the evidence. It's about the hardness of heart and hostility towards God. That's what it is. Now, friends, keep in mind, these are the leaders, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, those who were in the upper echelon, the elite of the Jewish religion, the keepers of the gate, if you will. The ones who study the scriptures, who have it memorized, they are the ones who want to do away with the evidence. This is what the hardness of heart does. Because on account of him, why would they want to kill Lazarus too? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So not only do we want to kill him, but then there's this other guy causing belief. Let's, let's kill him too. Unbelievable. Okay, and now, now here, here's an encouragement for you. Hey, I, I love apologetics. What is apologetics? Comes from 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, set apart Jesus as Lord, God as Lord. Sanctify him in your heart. And be prepared to give an answer, to give a defense for the reason of hope that lies within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. That word defense or answer is apologia. We get apologetics from it. It just means be able to reason and persuade and give an answer and to give a, an argument for Jesus. And friends, we could be the best apologists on the planet and in the face of the hardness of heart, you know what they'll do? They'll twist the evidence around and they'll make it totally the opposite of what you're trying to argue. Now, I think we should still persuade. I think we should still obey 1 Peter 3.15 and we should still reason. We should. Hey, this is what Paul did, reasoning in the synagogues daily. All right, now, listen to me. How did they get around this evidence? Here's how they did it. It's clear he's doing signs. It's clear he's supernatural. It's clear he has power beyond what we can explain. How do we explain this? He does what he does by the power of Satan. Right? And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Attributing to the power of God, 
satanic power. That's how they did it. They said, this man is evil. He's full of demons. He's full of Satan himself. This is how he does these miraculous signs. That's that's what they did with the evidence. Instead of falling down at the feet of their promised Messiah, satanic. That's what the hardness of heart does. Now listen, God is not making them disbelieve. It's their sin and it's their blindness and it's their hardness of heart that is disbelieving and reasoning twistedly This is satanic. But that's what sin and the hardness of heart does. And so while we're witnessing to friends, neighbors, and family, and coworkers, while we're reasoning and persuading and giving arguments and making a defense, we also must pray what? That God softens the heart. Because friends, you could be the greatest witness, the most ardent pleader, you could be the most persuasive in reasoning with the scriptures, Apollos himself, right? Mighty in the scriptures. And yet, if God is not drawing them, softening their heart, making them willing, they will not believe. And it's not because God is stiff-arming anyone. It's their sin and their love of it that makes them stiff-arm Jesus until he overcomes the resistance and he says, you will resist no more. Yet we, as Jesus' followers, still have the charge to be witnesses. When the disciples asked Jesus, at this time will you restore the kingdom in Acts 1, what was his answer? No, you, you go and you wait. You wait for the promised Holy Spirit and then you will receive power and then you will what? Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we, we do need to be witnesses But I'm trying to encourage you that your witness will be effective not because of you, but because of God, because of the spirits moving through you and ultimately on the person that you're talking to. So this is encouraging because you might think to yourself, I am terrible at talking to people about Jesus and I barely know how to argue and people stump me all the time. So what? Talk to them anyway, because how do you know that God's not moving in their heart? And how do you know that he won't take the very thing you say and keep them up in the middle of the night with it? Gnawing at their soul. Right? And you're like, I'm terrible. Meanwhile, they're like flipping and flopping in their bed. Was it the grande I drank at 9 a.m.? No, it's the spirit gnawing at your soul. I love that image. All right, let's move on and finish. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Who is the testimony? It's the Spirit. When you believe, you have the testimony of God, the Spirit, living inside of you. And by the way, the Holy Spirit, if you've ever stepped out in faith and you tried to talk to somebody, even though you were scared and shaking and you're like, I have no idea what to say, isn't it amazing that that's when God shows up? Have you done this? Have you ever stepped out in faith when you're scared, wordless, and you say the words anyway and God shows up? Friends, if you've never done that, you need to step out in faith. Your heart's pounding, you're sweating, you're like, I'm going to look like an idiot, they're going to think I'm a fool, I might get fired. Talk and watch the Spirit show up. Especially if you're sending up little missile prayers like, God help me, give me the words to say, and then say it. And just watch what will happen. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. The testimony of God and the Spirit. Because God has borne this testimony about his Son. Verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is in his Son. So friends, eternal life is just what it sounds like. It's life that never ends. And everybody has eternal life. The question isn't, do you have eternal life? It's where will you have eternal life? And the promise is when we come to God through the Son, by the Spirit, we have eternal life with Him. And as the story plays out, it actually lands on this earth. Recreated, renewed, without sin, glorified, new heavens, new earth, and new people with God in the center of it, living with his people. It's amazing, okay? 
And that's all wrapped up in Jesus. So if you're new here and you're wondering, why are they always singing about Jesus? Why are they always talking about Jesus? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He's the point. Without him, we have nothing. But with him, we have everything. And so come to Christ, cling to him, find life that is eternal. And listen, it's not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. This is resurrected life, deep assurance, deep peace, fellowship with others, the possibility of forgiveness with God and with your fellow man. Whoever has the Son has life. There it is again. If you have Jesus, you have this eternal life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And friends, there it is as clear as day. Verse 12, if you have Jesus, by grace, through faith, you have eternal life. But friends, if you don't have Jesus, you do not have this life. Okay? And my encouragement is you're here already. You're here for a reason. Something got you here tonight. Even if it was your parents dragging you here, you're here on purpose. You are here on purpose. No accidents in the economy of God. Therefore, why not take the step of belief and trust yourself to Jesus, turn from your sin, ask him for forgiveness and salvation, and he will save you. And then you can be one who knows that you have eternal life. And the testimony of God, his spirit, will reside inside of you as well. And so we go back to the beginning. At the beginning of Jesus' baptism, he's anointed. But even at the beginning, his own cousin said about him, the lamb, pointing to the cross, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. That's the point, that Jesus would die a substitutionary death on the cross for all those who would ever believe in him. And that possibility is open today for you. So please don't neglect it. Don't be like, yeah, next week, tomorrow. Save me, but not yet. I still got a little more sin I need to enjoy. Friends, throw the sin far from you and come to Jesus. It's not worth it.